While the search for Brienne continues, I just want you to know that I've exhausted all methods of communication at my disposal, as has Ron and now Detective Anderson. A missing persons report was filed shortly after the release of our last episode. And now, I guess we just wait. In the meantime, I need to record this episode to keep you all in the loop with what's happening. I think Brianne would want me to press on, if she were here. Speaking of Detective Anderson, I was also able to touch base with him and ask for his help regarding the recent connection I was able to make between Gerald Hubert, the initial identity of the body found in the hotel room back in the second episode of the show from season one, and Joseph Foy, who happens to be Malcolm's grandfather who raised him. The same Joseph Foy, whose fingerprints belong to that same body from the hotel room, even though the ID with the body said Gerald Hubert. And the very same Joseph Foy, whose fingerprints also showed up in the SCIC building, long after his alleged death. Anderson was just as perplexed as I am. I also told him about the tweet I received from Fourth Trumpet, encouraging me to look into Gerald Hubert. I'm at a loss, and I couldn't even give you an educated guess about how they're all related to Joseph Foy. But I'm calling in all the help I can get on this. I've also been spending extra time in the papers looking, well, when I'm not waiting in medical office lobbies, but I don't want to bore you with that nonsense. I did find another couple of documents that would potentially be related to those I shared last time in reference to Subject 14-3. These documents don't have any identification for the child they're related to, but given their context, I think it's safe to say that it may just be the same person. I'll let you decide. The first document appears to be an intake form from a trip to the hospital, most likely an emergency room or urgent care visit. If I can just vent for a second, I'm seriously tired of seeing all these redactions of names, dates, and locations. It would really be so much easier to follow up on things with all the pertinent information available. But I suppose I'm preaching to the choir when it comes to this kind of thing. I'm sure by now you're all tired of hearing the word redacted in your earbuds as you're listening. I'll see what I can do going forward to cut the use of that word down. Okay, now that I've got that out of my system, let's get to the intake form. All of the standard normal information like vital signs, reflex response, and visual observations are included and deemed normal, so I'll just start with the abnormal comments and spare you from the non-pertinent info. If this is the same child from the previous episode, my guess is this document predates the info shared last time. Important notes are as follows. Patient presents with general malaise and muscle weakening. Labs suggest early signs of malnutrition and vitamin deficiency that support the mother's claim of extended sleep deprivation. Child also complains of night terrors, but particularly vivid ones, and can recall minute details about dreams and potential hallucinations he is having. Referred for psychiatric consult. Patient's mother claims to be having similar experiences, 
though never in the presence of her child. Both were interviewed separately, and both described in similar detail what seems to be an, quote, inhuman entity, end quote, within their home that makes its presence known during sleeping hours. One other potential physical note to mention, the mother states the child has a strange-looking mark on their right forearm that appears and disappears. First thoughts were that it could be some kind of skin irritation or a rash, but the mother insists it's dark enough to look like a tattoo. Visual inspection and palpation of the area of interest were normal during my examination. Post-visit notes. Arranging for a 60-day in-home follow-up visit with a social worker and provided mother with a pamphlet for local pharmaceutical research company conducting clinical trials for a new drug to help with insomnia. Reference Rigen Pharmaceuticals. Okay, so I've never heard of Rigen Pharmaceuticals, so I googled them. They are still in operation today, and they're a subdivision of, you guessed it, SCIC. Now, if I only had a date this happened, I could research what clinical trials were going on around that time. Unfortunately, I do not have that information. I do have the next best thing, though. This next document is what I believe may be a report from the follow-up social worker's visit to the home. Of course, there's no date or identifying information included in this document. So there's a definite possibility that I'm wrong, and it's not the same person. Either way, it appears to have some common themes. It reads... Arrival at the home was met with some surprise. When asked about whether the mother was made aware of our social worker visit, she remembered it being discussed, but claimed she was never provided a date. She welcomed me into the home and was friendly and cooperative. I spent a few minutes in the living room with the mother reiterating the purpose of my visit while sitting on the couch, outside of the presence of the child. The mother seemed to have a hard time following complexities in our conversation. I don't believe there's any indication of drug use or abuse, but she seemed to be extremely fatigued. She appeared thin, with sunken eyes, and had trouble concentrating, often requiring extended amounts of time to recall events and answer questions. I took the opportunity to ask further probing questions prior to including the child in the discussion. A routine assessment quickly turned into a longer, more methodical one when she began explaining nighttime occurrences in the home. She believed that her son had the ability to conjure evil spirits, or demons as she referred to them, and that one of them is bound to their home. She proceeded to encourage me to tour their home. First, she walked me through their hallway leading to the bedrooms. Immediately, you could see scratch marks on the walls and even on the ceiling. Some appear to be more than one inch deep, and there are several places where exposed wooden beams could be seen beneath the drywall. She proceeded to walk me past the child's room, whispering that she didn't want to disturb him in case he was managing to get some sleep. We entered her bedroom, which is shared by the father. 
Similar scratches were noted on the walls and ceiling, and the bed frame was broken, leaving the mattress and box spring not level. She explained that they had been sleeping on the pull-out couch at night because the bed would often violently shake when they went to sleep. Pictures on the walls were hung upside down, and some were on the floor. None of them had glass within the frames, and the mother stated that they were intentionally removed to prevent sharp objects from flying around the room. We came outside of the room and back into the hallway to head back toward the living room, when I noticed the child at the end of the hall. He was just standing there staring at us. I told the mother... I didn't even hear his bedroom door open when I began to walk towards him, and she grabbed my upper arm. When I turned to look at the mother, she whispered, That's not him. The child I observed at the end of the hallway appeared to be the child from the pictures I remembered seeing in his file. So I asked, what do you mean? The mother continued, that's not my son. Sometimes the demons take different forms and they can make their appearance similar to people in this household. You can always tell that something is just off when it mimics. I turned to face the child to see if I could notice anything unusual. Aside from standing absolutely still and not speaking, nothing jumped out to me as being different at first. I turned to look at the mother again, who seemed to be recoiling a bit and not taking her eyes off the child. Then I turned to look at the child again, and I thought he was yawning for a moment but his mouth just kept opening wider and wider until it appeared impossibly large. His body began contorting into various shapes that shouldn't be possible with normal human anatomy. And then just a few seconds later, he rearranged himself back to normal. As I was standing there in disbelief, I heard him laugh as if he was trying to scare me and thought it was humorous with the knowledge that he did. Then, what I witnessed was truly terrifying. Child began walking backwards, further away from us at the very end of the hallway. He reached a point where the living room wall was behind him, and he paused for a moment. His mouth opened wide again, and he started flailing his arms, while that was happening, he put his left foot on the wall behind him and then his right. His body turned parallel to the floor as he took backward steps, just baby steps, up the wall. Once he was about halfway up the wall, he looked straight at us, closed his mouth, stopped flailing his arms and pointed toward us. Then he laughed again as if it was all just so amusing. He ran sideways along the wall toward the front door to the home and went out from our sight from our vantage point the opposite end of the hallway. At this point, I insisted that the mother allow me to speak to her son. 
who took a few steps toward her son's bedroom door, still closed, and she quietly opened the door. Looking over her shoulder, I could see what looked like the same child in the exact same clothes sleeping on his bed on top of the covers. I motioned to the mother and asked her to close the door. I didn't feel like disturbing the boy, and I had seen enough. I tried to remain calm and keep my composure, but I just couldn't be in that house any longer. I know it's highly unprofessional for me to say this, but I don't think I can return there or have any further contact with that family again. Furthermore, they don't need a social worker. They need a priest. Even as a standalone story, and even if it's not the same child from the previous documentation, that's so intense. I couldn't imagine witnessing something like that. It makes me wonder. Oh, shit. Um, I'm sorry. But when I go to do a podcast recording, I'll typically put my phone in airplane mode. When I finished reading that document, I glanced at my phone, and it looks like people have been trying to get a hold of me. I've got three voicemails. Hold on a sec. Okay, that first voicemail is Brienne. It was a short one. She says she's safe, but she's been with Malcolm. She's fine now, and she's on her way over. Oh shit, I think she's here now. Hi everyone. I took an extended break to talk to Brienne when she arrived, and after we spoke... We needed to take some time to call the police and file a report. Thankfully, Detective Anderson agreed to come here after we name-dropped to see if we could avoid going down to the station. This took several hours, and she was not in the mood to be recorded afterwards, though she said it was okay to share some of the details we discussed regarding where she's been over the last three weeks. Please understand, there are a lot of details I am unable to share since her experience is now the subject of an open investigation. It was as we feared. Brienne was physically abducted by Malcolm about three weeks ago. That sick asshole has been busy since his escape. She said that she'd been among several people who were sharing a damp, dark basement. Some of the others? Brienne said she couldn't be sure they were even still breathing. She couldn't remember how she got there, but she woke up and wrists were bound behind her back with duct tape. She also had duct tape covering her mouth. For the first couple of days, she believed she was alone. She said Malcolm would come speak to her periodically the first few hours, and then towards the end of the first day, he dragged her into the middle of the room and pulled up a chair, which he sat in while she was on the ground. She watched as he went quiet and entered some kind of a trance-like state. After what she estimated to be about 90 minutes go by, a figure began materializing in the corner of the room. There wasn't much light in the room, 
but the more time went by, the more she could make out certain distinguishing features of the figure. It was a woman, and all she ever did was stand there facing the corner. She said she heard Malcolm call her Tabitha. I reminded Brienne that Tabitha was the name of his late sister. At one point, Brienne was given supervised access to speak with Tabitha. Malcolm only gave Brienne two directives. Don't cause any problems. And fix her. She didn't really understand what he expected her to do, so she tried talking to Tabitha, but noted that she didn't seem coherent. She said if she were using her nursing skills, Tabitha would have been alert and oriented times zero. Brienne said that when she couldn't fix Tabitha, she suspected he began abducting other people. The environment where she was being kept was so dark, she said that she could barely make out anyone else in the room until she heard labored breathing. Every few hours, Malcolm would open the door at the top of a nearby stairwell, which would let a small amount of light in the room. For a few seconds each time this happened, Brienne could see duct tape with writing on it stuck to her co-occupants' foreheads. They were names. While she couldn't communicate with anyone there at the time, Brienne said she thought she recognized the names. At first, she couldn't remember why, and it began to bother her. Occasionally, after Malcolm had been going upstairs, he would unintentionally fail to close the door all the way, and it would swing open, which allowed Brienne to overhear portions of a conversation he was having. He seemed to be having conversations with someone else in the house. He had been searching for some kind of relic or physical object, as he made references about not knowing where to begin looking for it. On one occasion, she recalled him saying, I was convinced she was going to be strong enough. Then she heard a woman reply, You must locate the object, noting that the woman's accent sounded Indian American. This has to be Patel. Brienne also got the impression that the woman was referring to some kind of remote viewing capability, implying Malcolm had the ability to do that, but was failing somehow. She decided to keep that information to herself, but after her last session with Tabitha, she asked Malcolm why he had abducted her. His answer? Ask Jeremy. All of the answers are in those papers. As he went to replace the duct tape over her mouth, she noted his smile, which was widening just a little too much. After that, he told her she would be much more useful with access to the papers, so he told her he was going to let her go. She was duct taped around her wrist behind her back, as were her ankles, a cloth sack placed over her head, and she was injected with something. Afterward, she was thrown into a car trunk and driven around for over two hours. Eventually, she was dropped off about a block from the local hospital down an alleyway where there weren't any onlookers. 
That's where he pulled her out of the car and threw her over his shoulder and began walking for a couple of minutes. When he stopped, he removed the cloth over her head, placed her on the asphalt, and gave her a plastic butter knife, like the ones you get at fast food restaurants. There she sat for a while as she watched him run to the end of the alley and turn a corner where his car must have been parked while she worked away at the duct tape. We guessed he just wanted to be able to leave without her seeing his car or the direction he went once in it. As she was laboriously sawing away at the duct tape to free herself, and after constantly thinking about those names on people's foreheads, she was able to put it together. All of them were names she'd seen from the medical files, and all of them either had an M or an S label on them, though she couldn't remember which correlated to each name. She told me that I needed to research the shepherds more and find out what the M stood for in the documents. I jokingly told her that she needs to catch up with the podcast and filled her in on the makers and the shepherds' info. After Brianne left, I remembered that hours ago, when I realized she had left me a voice message saying she was on her way over, I had two additional voicemails. The first was from Ron. He encouraged me to start looking into documents relating to Joseph Foy and said we needed to find him. I thought this was interesting because I thought Anderson was doing that. And he had just been at my house and failed to mention anything about speaking to Ron about the matter. The second voicemail was even more unexpected. It was brief, yet concise, and was from Dr. Adira Patel. It simply said, We need to speak as soon as possible. 